This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Today, we're going to be looking at esophageal perforation. This is a deadly but can be difficult diagnosis to make in the ED. Esophageal perforation is a full thickness tear of the mucosal and muscular layers of the esophagus from some sudden increase in esophageal pressure. The esophagus lacks a serosal layer, which makes it more susceptible to perforation. Once perforation occurs, you have extravasation of gastric contents and bacteria into the mediastinum. This leads to mediastinitis, and then before you know it, you have systemic infection, empyema, and even death. Mortality rates reach up to 50%. Now, there are two types of esophageal perforation. The best well-known is Borhoff syndrome. This is a spontaneous perforation. It's defined as rupture of the esophagus due to forceful emesis. This happens because of a rapid increase in intraesophageal pressure and the opposing negative intrathoracic pressure. This is usually seen with deep inspirations between episodes of forceful emesis, but this only accounts for 15% of cases. The second type is idiopathic esophageal perforation. This has a wide variety of underlying etiologies. You need to think about endoscopy, thoracic trauma, caustic ingestion, foreign body ingestion, infection trauma, and even aortic pathology. One of the most important things about this disease is just having it on your radar. We're pretty good at thinking about acute coronary syndrome, PE, and dissection in that patient who presents with chest pain or shortness of breath. But we have to think of other things, like a perforated ulcer and esophageal perforation. We're going to get an EKG on everyone, but you need to use your history and exam to determine further evaluation. So let's look at history here. This is going to be one of the most important parts when we think about this diagnosis. Prior esophageal pathology and endoscopic procedures are the most commonly associated causes, but this occurs in well less than 1% of all endoscopy procedures. Vomiting is classically associated with Borhoff syndrome and esophageal perforation, but basically anything that causes a sudden increase in intraesophageal pressure can cause perforation. There are case reports of childbirth, seizure, prolonged coughing or laughing, and also extreme exertion or weightlifting associated with esophageal perforation. Let's get to our clinical presentation. The classic presentation of Borhoff syndrome, the one that we learn about and read about, is a patient who comes in with severe vomiting followed by chest pain, and then subcutaneous emphysema. This is known as Mackler's triad. However, this is present in less than 50% of cases, and nausea and vomiting are present in less than 20%, so you can't rely on this for diagnosis. By far, the most common presenting symptom is going to be some form of pain. Up to 70% of patients are going to have pain somewhere. The location of pain and other associated symptoms really depend on the site of the perforation. Cervical esophageal perforation may present with dysphagia, pain with even neck flexion, but dysphagia is present in less than 10% of patients. A thoracic esophageal perforation can present with chest pain, back pain, or epigastric pain. Patients will have shortness of breath in about a quarter of cases. If you have a patient who presents with a distal esophageal perforation, this can leak into the abdominal cavity. This may result in peritonitis and even radiation of pain to shoulders because of that diaphragm irritation. Systemic symptoms occur with severe pain and mediastinal perforation. Most patients are going to have tachycardia and tachypnea. Fever is only present in half of cases, and it often presents later on in the course of the disease. We also learn about subcutaneous emphysema in the neck or chest. 
This does suggest the disease, but it's present in less than 60% of patients and often isn't present immediately following the perforation. Hammond's crunch is that crunching sound over the precordium that occurs with each heartbeat that might occur from mediastinal emphysema, but this doesn't occur in all cases. You might have some abnormal breath sounds on the left side. This can be due to a pleural fusion or even a pneumothorax. When it comes to our ED evaluation, the World Society for Emergency Surgery recommends a CBC, electrolytes, creatinine, liver function tests, and basically a VBG with lactate. CRP may also be elevated, but you can't use these laboratory tests to exclude the diagnosis. We really need imaging here. We have a couple different options when it comes to your imaging. A chest x-ray is going to be abnormal in around 90% of cases. Now, this isn't going to diagnose it, but it can suggest the disease. Pneumomedicinum and subcutaneous emphysema are highly suggestive, and they're often present within the first several hours of injury on your chest x-ray. The V sign is air outlining the medial left hemidiaphragm and left lower mediastinal border. Later findings on chest x-ray can include a pleural fusion, which is usually left-sided. You might see mediastinal air fluid levels, free air under the diaphragm, hydrothorax, and then also pneumothorax. Your best bet is a CT with IV contrast or a CT esophagography. This usually uses oral contrast. CT has a sensitivity of around 92 to 100%, and it can look for alternative diagnoses, evaluate for the degree of involvement of surrounding structures, and then also guide management of intrathoracic or intraabdominal fluid collections that might need percutaneous or even surgical drainage. If you're suspicious for the disease and you have a negative CT, you can pursue other tests like diagnostic endoscopy or fluoroscopy with some water-based contrasts like gastrographin or barium, but you'll need to get your specialist involved. When it comes to management, you have several keys here. First, resuscitate the patient and provide broad-spectrum IV antibiotics. Second, provide a PPI, make the patient NPO, manage their symptoms with antiemetics and analgesics, and then most importantly, get your specialist on board early. You're going to want to load the boat here. Get your thoracic surgeons, your interventional radiologists, GI colleagues, and critical care specialists. The reason why we need so many specialists here is that there are several options available for definitive therapy, and these patients are often sick. Traditionally, esophageal perforation was managed with primary surgical repair, with prior studies suggesting a substantial reduction in mortality, but now we have a bunch of different options. Non-operative management is typically considered in patients who have been diagnosed early with evidence of a contained leak within the cervical esophagus and or the mediastinum. These patients should not have any involvement of the abdominal region, and they shouldn't be systemically unwell. Our specialists can use a hybrid approach, which can utilize minimally invasive procedures and also surgical repair, but this is going to depend on the location of the perforation, patient's underlying pathologies, and the clinical status of the patient. This hybrid management approach can utilize stent placement by GI and then even drainage of collections by IR, which can facilitate treatment while avoiding major invasive surgery. If the patient has a large perforation, they have overwhelming mediastinal infection, an infection collection formation, then these patients may need surgical intervention. If the patient needs surgical intervention, but this is going to be delayed, and that patient has a lot of GI material within the pleural cavity that is resulting in hemodynamic compromise, then you'll probably need to place a chest tube in the ED. Back to antibiotics, you have a bunch of different options here. Your first option would be something like piperacillin tazobactam plus vancomycin. Your second option would be meropenem plus vancomycin. And then finally, your third option would be something like cefepime plus metronidazole plus vancomycin. 
there are some studies suggesting that we need to cover these patients with an antifungal agent. Basically, patients with a history of immunocompromised state, esophageal lesions or infections, prolonged PPI use, or other risk factors for a fungal infection should receive IV antifungal coverage with something like a fluconazole or caspofungin. However, you'll need to speak with your ID and your surgical specialists. These patients may need an airway intervention if they're hemodynamically unstable or if they have profound accumulation of subcutaneous air. One of the keys here, though, is to avoid non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Any potential increase in transluminal pressure within the esophagus can potentially worsen the tear and increase subcutaneous air, which is going to lead to increasing difficulty in establishing a definitive airway. If the patient is toxic, they're in respiratory distress, then intubation is a good idea. These patients are critically ill, they're going to need interventions, and they'll probably need surgery. The final component of management is what to do about an NG tube. If you're thinking about placing one, you do need to be careful. Any increase in intraluminal pressure from, say, a patient having a gag reflex could theoretically worsen the tear. So discuss this with GI and your thoracic surgery specialist before you place one. In summary, the classic trida vomiting followed by chest pain and subcutaneous emphysema is present in less than half of cases. Vomiting in isolation is also present in less than half. The most common presenting symptom is pain, which is going to vary based on the location of the tear. Patients often have systemic signs like tachypnea and tachycardia, but fever will be present in only about 50% of patients, and this is often delayed. Subcutaneous emphysema in the neck and or chest suggests the disease, but it's present in less than 60% of patients and will not be immediately present following the perforation. A chest x-ray can be helpful and will be abnormal in 90% of cases. Your go-to imaging test is going to be a CT with IV contrast of the chest or a CT esophagography. Broad-spectrum antibiotics need to cover gram-positives, gram-negatives, and anaerobic bacteria. There are patients who are going to need fungal coverage, but you'll need to speak with your ID and surgical specialists. Other therapies include a PPI, make the patient NPO, potentially place an NG tube, and then get on the phone with your thoracic surgeons, your IR colleagues, GI, and finally the critical care specialists. Many of these patients will need airway intervention, but remember to avoid non-invasive positive pressure ventilation because this can potentially worsen transluminal pressures. If the patient needs an airway, reach for early endotracheal intubation. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. <music>